0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage Podcast.
1: Since I'm staring at two Sixers fans right now, I can can finally say, you know, I was very skeptical for a good three years. It began to feel like it was almost an excuse. Trust the process. Trust the process. Well, you know what? I guess we trusted it because here they are, second round. That was an impressive win in five games for the Philadelphia 76ers. NBA, NHL, NFL draft tonight.
2: You excited? Absolutely, yeah. I want to see all these quarterbacks. Um, one of my favorites, Lamar Jackson. I want to see where this guy goes, but it's going to be very interesting, fun to watch.
3: I want to hear with the thirty-second overall pick. Yes, the reigning Super the champion,
2: Philadelphia I, Eagles. I heard they're last. trying to. That's the highlight of the night. They're trying night. to get a little creative as well, maybe move up or down a little bit. We'll see what happens. And this is at
3: AT&T Stadium in Dallas, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. First so, time, first time ever that they've had it there, correct? Correct. Um. We all know like, it's not going to be as good as it was when it was in Philadelphia last year or two years ago. But you know, we'll probably get a pretty good crowd. And, and Dallas picking close to the top of the draft will maybe have something to be excited about for the yeah. first time in a while. Yeah. We'll get
1: loud in there with the Eagles picks. Absolutely. Well, you know, we're going to get to all this stuff today. Thanks for being with us. If you're a first-time listener, second, third, fourth, or with us every week, Thanks for being back. A little bit of personal news here. All three of us were in the Bacchus Theater last Saturday night. Brandon as a viewer. A spectacle. And Amit and I as um, <laughs> m- models. This was the first time, uh, to be honest, probably the last, that we'll ever do this. But I don't know. I,
3: don't roll it out, guys. Impressive performance.
1: As yeah, if I get a call from Vogue, I'm out of here. Well, I just want to let you know that. Well, why don't you explain, Brandon, to all of our listeners, for those who were not able to be there, what did this fashion event look like and how good were Amit and myself? How did we do?
3: That's a loaded question. <laughs> um, so so the fashion event is to launch the Udress magazine for the semester. They have one in the fall, one in the spring. And basically, there's a series of live performances with a fashion show mixed in where models such as Ahmed and Teddy come down the aisle, which is just kind of between some seats, in clothes from retailers in the area. So you guys, your stuff was from the ski bum, correct? Yes. Okay, so you, you they go to the ski bum, they get all fitted a couple of days beforehand, and then yeah, big you shout guys roll down the aisle um, rocking their like, surfwear I don't know how to, how Surf, you would describe street, it skatewear
1: stuff like well, that Well some of the people in the group were wearing clothes that would be very similar to what I would call beach clothing like a bathing suit but they had me mm-hmm. they had me floral colors They had me in like a pink Floyd rainbowy kind of shirt and a rain jacket mm-hmm. Now it's the spring show which is why they did this
3: but it was a lot of fun. I hope we were good out yeah. there. Yeah, and and also, no offense to you guys, but the live performances—I don't know how much of them you got to hear. Nothing. we were where stuffed you were. in the back. Oh, but sweating that, like crazy. That in the was back the highlight stage. of the show. Um, my man Jeffrey Atacora yep. on guitar, and I forget his buddy. Hey, he's name, performed here. But his buddy on multiple the saxophone. Times. I mean, those guys, those guys killed it playing just some.
2: Couple the Acapella like group it, as well. Um,
3: yeah, they had um, the crescendos were there. Yeah. They were good. Then they had Nick, Nick, Nick Snow as a showman. You guys missed a performance there. He's Michael Jackson at 18 years old or however well, old he is. Um, and then the, the guys who brought it down were Jeffrey and uh, I wish I remembered his name, but his, his pal's name on the saxophone with the jazz improv, the solos. That that was the highlight of the night. That was really impressive. You know, Amid,
1: we should we should get some photos on our social media on WVUD Sports maybe just to say
3: to you illuminate know. what we're discussing.
1: Yeah, just a yeah, photo because we've to got some, it we've to. got some very good. We have a photos. video
3: of Teddy coming down the walkway if you want to see I the action. I haven't seen that. Who did you take a- Did
1: you take a video of Amid too? I did not. I
3: only took one of you, Teddy. Did you? I you have, I have, one. Well, I have I,
1: one with myself I think you were,
3: on, you were on Instagram. It so yes. was on your Instagram story. Well,
1: Correct. I asked Brandon beforehand to take, sure, sure, to take yeah, one yeah, yeah. of me. Because I haven't
3: <laughs> seen one of Teddy. I'd like to
1: see that. <laughs> oh, Alright.
3: it'll be up on Twitter. And <laughs> it's
1: perfect. Give me a couple minutes. It's a little bit blurry, but, but we'll, we'll show yeah. it. Let's do it. I mean, yeah, you know, box
3: you, not the hey, place.
1: you know, we got there at 4.30. We didn't do the walk until 7.30. We were stuffed in the backstage for about an hour from 6.30 to 7.30. But, you know, when it finally came time to get out there didn't you, Amid, start to feel that blood pumping, the yeah. adrenaline, and it's good. it started, it very quickly started to feel real, and I, I don't know about you, but I got nervous out there. I don't want to say nervous,
2: but it, it did
3: feel real. I don't know if Amid's ever really been nervous. I, don't, I feel like you're not the kind of guy to get nervous.
2: No, not really, but it was fun. It's definitely something to, I guess, work on. Uh, again, you can never have uh, too many skills, so <laughs> this is something that uh, I could definitely put on my LinkedIn page now. Modeling uh, is definitely one, so I'm excited about that, and uh, yeah, like you said, this could be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I don't know if I can if I'll ever Absolutely. do that again, but it was definitely fun. Uh, U-Dress, probably one of the better RSOs uh, on campus. I feel like you say that quite a bit. You know, no, the, the they, are, WBUD, they really D, are. one of the better RSOs. No, that, they are the best. I never said better. They, we are the best. Okay. We are the best. Just it
1: was, to make that clear. It was, lot, <laughs> it was a lot of fun, the U-Dress fashion event. Also, next week, we'll be at uh, the DPA Delaware Press Association Awards Banquet, know. where we get recognized for some of the projects that we've done this past year. So a lot of good end of the year things coming in as we work to squeeze out as much good content as we can before the summer months.
0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. I was probably a little disappointed today that we didn't move the ball better with our first offense. But again, I've got to be able to recognize, see, yeah, our first defense is pretty good. The thing you often ask yourself is just what kind of ceiling do you have? Uh, sometimes you come out here and have a good day and you look pretty good, but your ceiling isn't real high, and you kind of know that. Uh, I think we have a high ceiling on both sides of the ball. And, uh, you know, we showed glimpses of that today, uh, but we're certainly going to have to be more uh, consistent. Uh, to be able to have a uh, what we would call a successful season. It's
1: head coach Danny Rocco of the Blue Hens football team talking about the Blue White Spring Game. This past Saturday night, the typical close to the end of spring practice. They'll have a little while off until they resume organized activities throughout the middle to end of the summer and into the fall. And to talk about the spring game, we welcome in our very own reporter, Hannah Trader. Hannah, thanks for being with us.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, Hannah, Rocco, you know, this is a this game, the scoring is who won the game, kind of irrelevant. What we really want to look at is the things that stood out. You know, Darius Wade, the transfer in the game, for the first, in front of Blue Hens fans for the first time, Troy Reader won, most improved player. How did that happen? Well, I'll ask you in a second. Mm-hmm. And then you throw in Joe Walker as a receiver and put all of this together. What was your biggest takeaway or takeaways from, from this game as they wrapped up spring practice?
4: Uh, what I really noticed was there just seemed to be, uh, in every aspect of the game for the most part, just such a comfortability for everyone. Um, even with kind of all the transitions and changings that are happening, like a new quarterback coming in who in the spring game, at least had a really big role, played a ton, you know, Joe Walker, at quarterback and the offense that's always been like a little bit iffy, but kind of started to kick it in at the end of last season. So all these aspects that at once were kind of like what's going on in this game, it just didn't seem like that. And obviously there's still things they really need to work on. They have a ton of time, but they're just, everyone's in their position seemed to be so comfortable. And I just feel I hadn't really seen that um, in every aspect of the game last season. So
1: felt like it, 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 it it's already happened. It's not last year this was a new team exactly. and all been put together. And having, you know, there were some small changes on this team. But for the most part, you know, the majority of this team is remaining intact mm-hmm. and, and the, the major units. Exactly. So now Darius Wade comes out. He's a transfer from Boston College. And he, you know, you'd pair him up next to J.P. Caruso. J.P. Caruso, we didn't really know what we were going to expect last year when he came in, ended up getting some starts from Walker, was benched, really nothing notable. What did you see from Darius Wade?
4: I was really impressed. I was really excited to see him play for the first time. I didn't expect to see him play as much as he did. Um, he played the most by far um, out of any of the quarterbacks. Every Both halves, um, Coach Rocco added a fifth series, and Wade was the quarterback to play both times. Um, what what I didn't see from him a ton was um, kind of like his running game and how he can run. We didn't really see that from him. He mainly threw. Um, and in that aspect, he was pretty impressive. He seemed really comfortable, um, kind of as I said earlier, and he seemed comfortable calling the plays, comfortable throwing the ball, just comfortable with the players out there. Um, you know, when we talked to him at the end of the game, he wasn't completely satisfied with how he played, um, but... I say for his first time being out on the field in the game environment, he looked pretty good.
3: Something that we discussed last week on the show was the quarterback situation and kind of pegging the race at this point for one quarterback or the other. For those who are unaware, J.P. Caruso, last year's starter, is currently injured. He'll be back uh, most likely before the season really gets going, but he wasn't playing in the spring practices. So Wade getting the bulk, as you said there, of the snaps. Do you slot him in right now as the number one guy based on what you saw at the spring game and what the coaches and the players discussed after the game?
4: Yeah, I would definitely not be surprised if he comes out as number one, especially just kind of with what was going on with Caruso during the spring. Um, Wade has obviously had this entire spring camp to get to know the team and practice, um, probably most likely as QB1 in these practices, so I wouldn't be surprised if... um, Come preseason, Rocco really focuses on him, and we see him come out in the first couple games as the starting quarterback. I kind of imagine a somewhat similar situation to last year, um, where I feel like Coach Rocco is kind of going to test things out. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, but I wouldn't be surprised if in these first couple games we see Wade as the quarterback.
2: Teddy mentioned this last week, and he, and he talked about Deontay Cherry leaving. Um, one of the a guy who set many records for the school uh, in the air game, but like collects. 20.
3: Which records did he set?
2: Well, not records, but you know, he's—he was, he was one I'm of the top saying, guys, right? We're over—I think
3: I think we're generally overstating his impact on the team. Well, I don't think he's a loss. Sure, but a four—I mean,
1: this was—I mean, Michael Johnson was the guy who set records. I mean, Michael Johnson was a senior right. three years ago. But I see where you're going with. Like this. a four-year guy who was a, a number one target, I would say. Sure, no
2: records, but in, no yes, records. And but just, they
3: completed like ten passes a game. Sure,
2: yeah, the the guy, the go-to guy, really for the hens, but. Um, Teddy did mention collectively they get better because, I mean, they have a lot of young guys. Um, how did the air game look really for some of the wide receivers, um, losing some seniors? And then also how did Joe Walker look as well, kind of transitioning, um, into a full-time wide receiver?
4: Well, that's honestly kind of how I was going to answer your first part of the question. I was just completely overtaken and impressed by Joe Walker. Um, he, I think like he just like really distracted me from even paying attention to like a ton of the other like wide receivers in the game because he just looked so good. He looked so comfortable. Um, I was extremely impressed by him and um, we got to talk to him after the game and that was really cool. And it was kind of the first time talking to Joe Walker as a wide receiver and not a quarterback. And he just seemed so comfortable Um, and he just seemed so happy. I was actually saying to Teddy earlier this week, like I've interviewed Joe Walker before as a quarterback and he never really had much to say and, wasn't a guy of many words and then when we interviewed him as wide receiver now he just couldn't stop talking he just had a huge smile on his face and was so happy so confident so excited for the season coming up so he played he played really really
0: well I was really
4: impressed by him
1: here's Rocco talking about Walker after the game
0: I think the transition has been really good Uh, he's really uh, went out there and owned it and uh, taken a lot of pride in Did very little with Joe this spring as a wildcat and as a reverse pass guy, but uh, he really increased his ability and uh, acumen as a wide receiver, and and I feel really good about where he, I feel really good about where our receiving core is. Don't feel good about where our passing game is right now.
1: You heard Rocco say right there that he feels really good about the receiving game where it's at. Again, we're talking to Hannah Trader, our very own reporter here on the cage. Delaware football finished the spring game over the weekend. But you heard in that clip right there talking about Walker and Rocco feeling confident in the receiving game. And, you know, I mean, you said they lose some guys. It's really just cherry. But then again, Jamie Jarman ended up becoming a number one guy. And the offense was led on the ground. So you can't really get
3: much worse in the air from where they were last year. And we saw doses last season of what Joe Walker could provide as a wide receiver. You think to what he did in the main game where he was the number one option in that game in a must win for the Blue Hens the week after they blew a lead at Towson in a game that they definitely should have won. Walker shows up the next week and he's a big impact player against Maine making big plays down the field. And it's something that Hannah said a few moments ago, I imagine it's a lot easier to be... The wide receiver now, and just to be able to make big plays, and still have Jamie Jarman there to take a lot of the load, and you still have Vinny Papali and Gene Coleman and all these other guys who contributed last year. You're not looked upon to be the sole contributor at that spot in the same way that he was looked upon the past three pre seasons to be the guy behind center, and he had all of the criticism of all of the fans year after year, and it was warranted. But you have to live with that. You get us saying. Week after week, Joe Walker sucks. Where is the next guy? And at wide receiver, now he has an opportunity to let that all go and kind of reinvent himself. And I think there's a lot less pressure on him. It's got to be a lot more fun for him to to just be in that new spot and just be able to make big plays.
1: Absolutely. And Hannah and I were talking about this earlier this week. I said despite what he did in the quarterback position, which let's be blunt, it wasn't good at all. It was terrible. And he never (laughs) – he he had some bursts of – Speed, for one, but also some bursts of possible talent that he might have in the air. But, Hannah, what I was telling you before is that, you know, throw that all away. Put it aside and look at this right now. If he can step onto the field here in this senior season for Joe Walker back in the fall, of course, and be a threat, do you think fans will end up being forgiving? And you think fans will be able to put aside the struggles that he had at the QB position and embrace him as a new receiver?
4: Mm -hmm. I think so. I don't see why they wouldn't. I mean, you know, I don't think as as the seasons went on, I don't think anyone unfortunately really had any big expectations for Walker while he was in the quarterback role. And I think that when fans see his dedication to the team and see his just um, ability to step into a new position without any hesitation at all, especially in his senior season. I don't see how you kind of couldn't forgive him and be like, this is probably where he was always meant to be. Um, I think once you see him play and once you see him use the skills, as you kind of just said, that we sort of saw in quarterback, but now as we see them in just a full-time role, honing in on exactly what he's good at, um, once he starts impacting the team positively and helping in such immense ways, I don't see how fans couldn't be forgiving.
1: In the spring game, the blue team ended up um – Winning. That's the offense. 46-44. to 44. Again, we're not paying too much attention to the score. But a couple other things happened You know, during this game. You had your captains announced. You had some award winners announced, Hannah. So the most improved on offense, offensive lineman Colin Walsh, weight room champion Troy Reeder. And Reeder also most improved on defense. Troy Reeder was a beast last year. How is this guy winning most improved player?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, Teddy, you're asking the exact question. every Well, I don't want to speak for everyone, but... A lot of people were asking um, when we were up in the press box and that was announced, we all kind of looked at each other like, what just happened? Um, and then when we talked to Coach Rocco at the end and Troy Reader, both were, you know, Rocco understood the surprise but kind of talked us through it, and um, Troy Reader was a little surprised. So kind of what Rocco was really focusing on when he was talking about Troy getting most improved was that um, he was just so impressed by Reader's ability to Focus in on a couple things that he knew he wasn't good at, and they talked about like not that he really needed to perfect, and they talked about that. And he was just so impressed with Reader coming into spring practice and just honing in on those couple things. And Coach Rocco was saying how it's so comfortable to fix what you're good at, but not what you're not too good at. And he was really impressed and wanted to honor that Troy Reader took his game to the next level, and um, just as he said, that's why he got most improved.
1: You put Reader up with Charles Bell fellow linebacker who had a bad injury last year but retained his eligibility, so he'll be in this year as well. Those two, and then Joe Walker, the three captains uh, uh, that were acknowledged so far. There will be a couple more as the season goes on. But all in all, Hannah, we expect this defense, again, to be very dominant. And you know the running game should be good. Corey Spruill had a really good end of last season. At this point, the question as it was last year really comes down to what we saw at the quarterback position, Mm -hmm. after being at the spring game, after observing this meaningless game, but a game that provided fans a reminder of what this team could bring in the fall. Do you think that, and maybe it didn't happen on Saturday, but do you think that at some point, you know, this team in the quarterback position, they may have the assets to get them over that hump this season and, and get them to the playoffs when they couldn't do so this past year?
4: Mm-hmm. I think so. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think so. I think that I really saw from the offense that not one player in particular, at least in the spring game, really stood out, but th- that everyone was doing their job, and that was I was happy to see that. And then I think if you bring in a consistent quarterback and one of the quarterbacks, whether it's Wade or Caruso or ends up being someone else, but right now it seems like it'll be one of them, if one of them can really step in and – just take control and take charge. I think once you get that nailed down, the team has everything it needs to get over that hump. We have such a strong defense that's only getting stronger. We have an offense that, you know, is really starting to mesh and everyone's playing their role. And I think that once you add in your consistent quarterback, once the team gets comfortable with that person and that person gets comfortable with that role for full time, I think once you get all of those meshing together, we could definitely get over that hump.
3: One name that we haven't discussed at the quarterback position yet today is Nolan Henderson, who last year was a true freshman out of Smyrna, a two-time Gatorade Player of the Year at Smyrna, two-time state champion at Smyrna, very, very accomplished in his high school career. And last year at the end of the season, Danny Rocco spoke very highly of the freshman, saying that he developed very nicely under um the offensive coaching staff this year, he served as the quarterback of the scout team last year, so he got experience playing against Delaware's first-team defense. But then they also bring in Darius Wade, so it maybe limits his opportunity coming into this season to get reps mm-hmm. with the first or maybe even the second team. Where do you see Nolan Henderson fitting into this picture this season and maybe looking down the road years beyond?
4: Mm-hmm yeah I was surprised to to not see him play much um you know in one series Rocco brought every quarterback in and let him play let each quarterback play for one play and that was the only time Henderson came in, which did really surprise me. I expected him him to kind of be playing in all honesty what Wade was playing. I expected to see him in there the most um but we didn't and I think that you know his name never even really came up throughout the interviews and what was going on there, but I think what might be going through Coach Rocco's mind and the other coaches in the team is that his role will, he will still be as a quarterback on this team, but I think he's going to kind of be, um, you know, maybe the first, second backup. Um, Pat Kehoe played a lot in the spring game as well. We kind of know he's in the mix as a backup always. Yep. Um, and I think that Nolan Henderson will kind of be right behind Pat Kehoe or maybe kind of up with Pat Kehoe. Um, I don't – and then I see in the future, um, you know, with – when Caruso and Wade and when all when when these quarterbacks leave, I see Nolan Henderson definitely stepping up. I think that he's still a young player um, and still probably has so much growth to be done um, that I see him once uh, eventually definitely having that number one quarterback spot, but not this season for sure.
1: And that fits in with everything we had been talking about before, thinking that you know what we don't know what Darius Wade has to offer but it's got to be the best, if not right around the best quarterback that's on this roster. So we figured it's going to be Wade battling Caruso and whether we really know this or not after the spring game, but I think ideally, like we talked about last week, Darius Wade would come in Mm -hmm. and he would be that starting quarterback.
4: Mm -hmm. Any,
1: any final observations you want to note here before we hop to break?
4: Uh, I don't think so. I think the spring game just got me really excited for the fall. Um, like I said, every, every part of the game was looking really good. And, um, yeah, I was excited.
1: Hannah Trader, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Thank you. Anna.
0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast.
1: This is WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark. Blue Hen Sports Cage rolls on. It's 5.43, and it's time for our favorite segment, Cage Rage.
3: This is Cage Rage, I'm Brandon Halveck talking about Kelly Olynyk and a little ode to the man bun sensation who will be packing his bags, going home, sent out in five games by the Philadelphia 76ers, the backup power forward for the Miami Heat. Kelly Olynyk. this is my message to you, just a reminder to all the NBA fans out there that Kelly Olynyk, in my opinion, is the least likable player in the league. He's a hack, he's dirty, he's got an awful man bun. He's terrible to watch. If he's ever on the Sixers, I've already vowed to disaffiliate myself from the team, a team that I have so very much loved through my career, especially in the past few years as the process has come to its culmination point. Kelly Olynyk famously pulled Kevin Love's shoulder out of its socket, caused him to miss the rest of the season. He was diving on the floor all over the place in this series against the Sixers, part of the Heat's overall tone set in this series to be as physical as possible. If the Heat foul on every single play, the refs can't possibly call all of them, and Kelly Olynyk was at the head of that. He's a terrible player. Dwell Embiid forced him to come off the floor every time that Embiid checked back into the game. He's lucky Embiid didn't play games one and two. That completely embarrassed. Stop shooting the ball well at the end of this series. Bye, Kelly Olynyk. Have a nice time in Miami. And you know what's so sad? One game
1: that he took over the Cel- he took over in the second round of the playoffs in game 7 Celtics Wizards last year he took it over and that one game earned him this big contract down in Miami but he's just, he was he was annoying last year he's annoying Thank this you, year Thank you Teddy Yes Well because I because I'm a Wizards fan you're a Sixers fan and he knocked my team out of the playoffs right, last year Right that's the
3: year. best game of his career yes. Absolutely in a game 7 timely for him, because he gets this contract in Miami, and he's not a good player. And that's
1: not, yeah, last year, it's like, not a representation of how good he is. He's not a good defensive good player at
3: all. Like, he can't cover fast and agile fours, and he can't cover big fives. He can shoot a little bit. That's his best attribute. He can't put the ball on the floor. He's a hack. That's all he is. He's a guy who gets in there and uses all six fouls. You can count on him for that. And I mean, he fouled probably 12 times in the games against the Sixers, and they're just a more talented team and took it to him. As they should have. Kelly Olenek, you're, in my opinion, the least likable player in the NBA. Even the Birdman's better than him. Absolutely. I mean, like, people like don't like, say, Lance Stevenson. Like, there's redeeming qualities with Lance Stevenson. He's entertaining. Kelly Olenek is the worst. He's the worst.
1: And now he's gone. So at least he's he's finished now. But... Let's when we look at that series right there yeah. the
3: and I'm I'm not bitter about it I mean it's just that they lost. I just wanted to highlight the fact that this guy throughout his career has been intentionally dirty multiple
1: times. Well I mean you figured that what the heat in this series maybe they'd get one or two. Uh, some people thought the series would go long. I didn't think it would be a sweep. I thought I think I might have picked Sixers and Six but Yeah that's what I said. Okay, but the heat okay. at home they didn't they have leads in both of the two home games. But they yeah, did, at they some point, yeah. But they didn't have... That's a dumb question. Of course they did it. I'm saying... Yeah, but like, later, like deep into the game. Yeah, 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 yeah. Quarter, They were in both games. But when it came down to it, they just... Dwayne Wade couldn't replicate his performance in Game 2. And as a team, they were fe- feisty, they were pesky, but they don't have nearly as much talent as Philadelphia did. And so now the Heat are yeah. finished.
3: And even the talent that they do have, I felt like they misutilized it. I don't know why Dwayne Wade didn't play more minutes in Games 1 and 3. In the most recent game, I don't know why Tyler Johnson didn't play more. The dude was on fire. He's the only guy hitting shots in Game 5, and he was consistently coming off the floor. Everybody, as they give their post-mortem to Miami, is talking about the wild ineffectiveness of Hassan Whiteside and how he barely can stay on the floor, and that's certainly a warranted discussion because of how much money he's due and will command over the next few seasons. But I thought they mismanaged their role players. It's a team that, throughout the course of the regular season, I think played above their skill level certainly, to be the sixth seed against, or excuse me, over a Milwaukee Bucks team with Giannis and over the Wizards with John Wall and Bradley Beal. They don't have players close to the caliber of those three. Um, and that showed in the playoffs against the Sixers that they're not a talented enough team to hang with these real talented playoff teams.
1: That was the only series in the East that is not going to at least six games because you've got the Cavs and the Pacers that are about to play six, Wizards, and the Raptors are going to play six. And then you got the Bucks and the Celtics who are going six as well. So if you're the Sixers right now, you've got a lot of time off. You got some time to rest, recharge, and the longer the Celtics Bucks series goes, the better. The longer the Sixers wait.
3: Yep. Yeah. Celtics Bucks tonight, game six. It's an interesting one. It's been a very interesting series. Both teams have defended their home floor. I really have been impressed with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, what they've done as first and second year players in this series. But there's something to be said about Giannis Antetokounmpo, and what he, how transcendent a player he is, and what he'll provide in this game, especially when he's playing as that small ball center, it's it's very tough for Boston to counter.
1: Hey, you know what? Let's have a little fun. The three series that are still left in the East: Celtics, Bucks, Wizards, Raptors, Cavs, Pacers. Pacers, Bucks, and Wizards are all home for Game Six. Put them in order, the the series that is most likely to go to seven and the series at the bottom that is least likely to go to seven and the away team is going to win on the road.
3: So most likely to go to seven, meaning the home team wins Mm -hmm. game six. Mm -hmm. Washington will win game six, in my opinion, and go to seven against Toronto. Next, Milwaukee will win game six and go to seven against Boston. Cleveland, I think, is going to win in game six against Indiana. After that big 3 last night from LeBron James, what he did basically single-handedly rummaging through that team in the second half, he comes up with the game winner. They have all the momentum right now. I think they close it out in game 6 against Indiana.
1: I agree with you too. I think that that's that's the team. Even if they lose, they're going to come home and they're going to win. But if you're the Cavs, just think about this. Now, obviously LeBron is the best player around, but Without him, how good is that team? I was talking to somebody last night, and you know what I said? I want to hear what you think about this, but I said without LeBron, they're in the territory of the maybe maybe the Hornets, if not worse. That's fair.
3: I think Which is, of
1: course, a non-playoff team.
3: Yeah, they've changed their team a little bit to try to highlight just having supporting ca- characters for LeBron, where if they still had Isaiah Thomas, they would at least have a guy to play through. I mean, they do have Kevin Love, but a guy who could handle for them and be a primary ball handler, should not Should they not have LeBron? And this is a conversation that actually matters because there's a chance LeBron won't be a Cleveland Cavalier in 2018, 2019. But it also just goes to show how good LeBron has been, that despite the inefficiencies around him, they're on their way to winning a playoff series. And in my opinion, they're still the scariest team in the Eastern Conference.
1: You have to wonder how you consider the East playoffs as a whole right now, and you look back a couple months ago and say if the Celtics were perfectly healthy and he were to have Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward, that team, top to bottom, just looks so solid. And the Cavs, you know, LeBron and whatever else they have, the Raptors playing better... But now, because the Cavs as a team are not as good, and the Celtics have those injuries, it opens up a door for the Sixers to possibly make a run to the conference finals or more. But you put all of this together now, and you have to wonder how long can the Cavs keep this going with these games against the Pacers I mean, They're going to play a better team than the Pacers in the second round. How long are they going to be able to do this? And how long, how many more times can LeBron put the team on his back like he did last night?
3: That's the question. And if 2015 is any indication, it's pretty far. I mean, that's a team that lost Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving on their run-up to the NBA finals. And they still won two games against the Golden State Warriors, who had way more talent than them. And even in the games that they lost, LeBron James put up the numbers in that series that made the argument that he should have been the MVP despite his team losing in six games. So, you know, I don't want to be all the biggest LeBron fan here, but you have to give credit where credit is due. And if anybody is going to take their team single-handedly to the NBA Finals, it's going to be him. So
1: you look in the East, before we hop over to the West here, again... The Cavaliers beat the Pacers last night. It's now 3-2 to Cleveland. And Game 6 in Indiana will be held on Friday night at 8 o'clock on ESPN. You look also in the East, Game 6, Toronto-Washington uh, down in D.C. That's Friday night as well in D.C. as it's Game 6. And then you got the Bucks and the Celtics in Milwaukee tonight in Game 6. If... Basically, the winner of the Celtics-Bucks is going to play the winner of or, or the Sixers, Sixers, the Sixers, mm-hmm. um, and then the, the, the Sixers, uh-huh. of course. And then you're going to have Toronto and Washington, the winner there, face the winner of Cleveland and Indiana. Yep. Again, I'm not making excuses at all because I think the Sixers are a really good team. But you gotta love the if you're a Sixers fan, the way that oh, thi- I love it. Yeah. The way that this is worked out. Sure, the Cavs aren't as good as a team, but if you can avoid them to the finals, even or Eastern Conference finals. Yeah. Even the Raptors, who, yes, DeRozan and Lowry always seem to flop in the playoffs, but it's a better team. Now, it, you know, the longer the Sixers can rest, and maybe they can get some from a team like the Cavs in the Eastern Conference Finals, but the turnaround by Philadelphia is very impressive these last few weeks.
3: And that's why the 17-game winning streak to close, or yeah, to, to 16 games to close the regular season, plus the first game one win and make it a seven-team game winning streak. That's why that's so important, because that winning streak took them from the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference up to the third seed. It took them out of that 4-5 matchup where they'd be facing the winner of what became Toronto-Washington, the first seed versus the eighth seed. So all credit goes to the team for taking care of business against the teams that were below them in the standings. It was an easy schedule, but then rising to the occasion in the big games, beating Cleveland in an overtime game beating Milwaukee on the final game of the regular season to secure that third seed over the Cavaliers and pushing that series as far down the road as you can. And even looking at this series in the first round between Indiana and Cleveland, there was a chance if Indiana closed out game four that Cleveland would have been toast, that they would have been done. If they go down 3-1, that is a hard hill to climb back from. And had that happened, Philadelphia would have been an even, even better situation because they would have either a hobbled Celtics team or a Bucks team that I think they can beat. And then possibly after that, just Pacers or Toronto or Washington, teams that are very good and will push them, but teams that are certainly beatable. LeBron will be tough, but the further you can kick the can down the road, you know, eventually yes, you'll have to play the Cavs and beat them. You gotta beat the best to be the best. But it will continue to make this magical season that much more impressive if they can say they made it to the Eastern semifinals like they can say now, and then they can say they made it to the Eastern Conference finals, and then perhaps beyond that, the NBA finals.
1: We're talking NBA on the cage here. Just Brandon and I right now, we talk about the Eastern playoffs right now. We'll go to the West. You know what I'm really excited about? The Pelicans-Warriors series. Again, I mean, the Warriors, this may not be the Warriors of last year. They've They've had injury problems, and the Rockets look so good, but The New Orleans Pelicans, what they were able to do against Portland in four games, and the way that that team, Rayjean Rondo looking like an all-star, Drew Holiday, Anthony Davis, who easily is one of the best players in the NBA right now. You throw it all together, and this makes a very captivating second-round series between New Orleans and Golden State.
3: Absolutely. This is the second-round series to watch, especially in the Western Conference. Golden State still has to be the favorite without... Any doubts in my mind, they are. And Steph Curry's possible return at some point in this series makes it even more in their favor. But with that being said, Drew Holiday has been so good defensively. He shut down Damian Lillard in that four-game series. John Rondo has been great on the offensive end. And Golden State does not have someone who can hang with Anthony Davis. They don't. That is the type of player that they can't match up against, the one type that they can't switch against because of what he can do from the three-point line and what he can do down low draymond green can chase him outside and try to body him down low but that is a tough matchup and if he gets in foul trouble they don't have that next guy to make that matchup. last year in the nba finals kevin durant did a nice job in my opinion of providing quote-unquote raymond green insurance should he have to come out of the game for foul trouble or because you know he is a hothead and situations have happened in the past that have caused him to miss time in critical junctures of games and of series I thought Durant provided insurance for that because he was good enough to play center against Cleveland and against Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson. He's not good enough at defending the center to guard Anthony Davis. There is nobody who can do that. So it is a very interesting matchup from an X's and O's standpoint, and it could perhaps expose the few vulnerabilities that Golden State has.
1: And he, I think even if New Orleans doesn't get past this series, as most would most would guess, they're in a position now... To be competitive for they're years to come. They're going to push come. them. Years to come.
3: Even in this series, I think this is in no way a four or five game series. They're going to push them. They're going to win games at home. Mm-hmm. And they're really going to make Golden State work for it in a way that the Warriors haven't had to in a couple of years in these early playoff series. I think we can make our picks
1: for that series later on. I mean, even though we're still in the first round with some of these, I think we could pick that later on in the show. So now on the other side of of the West, you'll have Houston, who took down Minnesota four games to one. Minnesota, that's a team that's going to get better, and they're going to get better, but it's just a, a draw that you're
3: not going to beat the Rockets. The took one. You're not, not going to beat them. Not, not going to beat the Rockets. Definitely huge rooms for that team to improve, I think, with better coaching, with more consistent um, play, and especially with the injury problems they had. Losing Jimmy Butler for about 20 games at the end of the regular season does not help you build that chemistry heading into the playoffs. But they have the building blocks in place. You have Andrew Wiggins on a max deal, Jimmy Butler for at least another season, and then Carl Anthony Towns is the guy in the middle. So that's a team that will be around the block the next few years. Um, but playing against Houston, I mean, you gotta, you got to bring your best. and They didn't bring their best if you're going to try to beat that team. And even Houston didn't play their best. They kind of coasted through that series. James Harden did not play well, but they're good enough that he doesn't have to, that they have other options they can go to.
0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast.
1: Ah, the igloo has returned. Eric Allen in the studio to talk NHL. Hockey rolls on. We are all set for the second round of the playoffs. We haven't played any games yet in the second round, but we're ready to go. Thanks for being here, Eric.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an It seems like an annual tradition. We come at the end of April
1: we talk about this uh, cap Pens-Cap, Penn's Caps rivalry going into the second round. It's always here. It always will come. Who will win? Well, we know who has won the last couple years, and one team, the Capitals, are trying to put an end to what has been the wrong end of history. And the Penguins, on the other side, are looking to get back to the Eastern Conference Finals and back to the Stanley Cup Finals and look for the third consecutive Stanley Cup. They've won two in a row, so you look in the East. Last night, first of all, Toronto... Fell to Boston in Game 7. It was a high-scoring game, very good game. But Boston, the winner, they'll go up against Tampa Bay in one side of the east. And then you got Washington and Pittsburgh on the other side. And then in the west, Winnipeg Jets, National Predators in one matchup. And on the other side, we got the San Jose Sharks. And the first-year franchise, Las Vegas, Golden Knights. So that's the second round of the NHL playoffs. We've got two games tonight, Penguins-Caps. And then Sharks, Golden Knights. Let's start with the Penguins and the Caps. For those of you who don't know, Eric is a Penguins fan. I am a Capitals fan. And the last couple seasons, it's been a long series, but it's been the Penguins series. Let me ask you this first. In your mind, even though you're a Penguins fan, in your mind, how did the Caps reverse the script this year? You know, I think they uh, do what they've been doing in the
5: last round after they made the goal change. I was a big fan of going in with Philip Grubauer. I thought he had a really strong end of the season. Uh, he had a heck of a game against the Penguins near the end. Uh, I thought they could roll with him, but he went into trouble. The Caps went down 0-2, uh, losing both games at home, and that's a bad omen for a team. You don't want to lose at home, definitely not your first two games. But then you have to go on the road, but the Caps did that. They went on the road, won the next two, and then won two more, and they ended that series 4-2. Um, and that was a heck of a series by the Capitals. And they put their elite guys showed up. They had depth contributing, and you know I think this reminds me a lot of the '09 Penguins, where uh, it wasn't necessarily the best, most talented players. It's definitely less talented team than last year. The, that I think you would agree with that. There's sure, no Nate sure. Schmidt. There's no um, uh, Williamson. Uh, you've lost some key guys, but you know they've got depth and they're just mesh and they're playing well together. They've kind of spread out their depth a little bit. They have uh, Backstrom not playing with Ovechkin now. Oshie's a little banged up, but uh, he'll be playing. Um, and they're facing a Penguins team that, quite frankly, is a little beat up. Malkin. Uh, traveled with the team. He'll be out game one along with uh, Carl Hagelin, so that's two-thirds of the second line. Um, Malkin, uh, nearly 100-point score this year. A guy you can't really replace, but the Penguins made a key treat, trade that I was actually against at the time, and they traded Ian Cole and a pr- prospect and a first uh, and another player. Uh, it was like a three-way trade, uh, but they brought back Derek Bersard who's a number two center, a great center uh, for almost, a number two center for any team of the Penguins, but he's been playing as a third center for the Penguins. So he'll slide up um, they're actually, he won't slide up. He'll just take a little bit bigger of a responsibility. But Riley uh, Sheehan, who they acquired from the Detroit Red Wings, will move up in that spot, play with Phil Kessel, um, and then either uh, Dominic Simone or Zagaston uh, and Reese. That'll be the second line. And the third line will be uh, Connor Sheary, uh, Derek Broussard, and uh, Brian Russ. So, they, you know, they've really spread the depth there. Uh, Kessel and Sheehan have had some great chemistry when they played before um, Broussard was acquired. And I think this team has a chance, especially if Malcolm can get back. Hagelin didn't travel. He'll be out the first two games. But Malkin did travel. He practiced today. And, you know, I thought he looked good, but people said he looked like he had a limp. I wouldn't be surprised if he had the same injury as Sean Couturier of the Flyers, um, which was an MCL tear. Um, But hockey players are tough, and they'll play on that stuff. Uh, As long as they can walk, they'll play. So this is going to be a tight series. If Malkin is able to go, I think the Penguins win it in seven. If not,
1: I think that uh, the Caps will win this one in seven. Five of the last seven seasons – the Washington Capitals have made it to the second round of the NHL playoffs, but have not advanced. In the other two seasons, they lost in the first round back in 2012, 2013, and in 2013, 2014, they did not qualify. You said the Penguins are a little bit banged up. It's noted that they are. You don't have Hagelin. You don't have uh, Malkin tonight in this game. But you mentioned it before. When you lose two games at home, like the Caps did against Columbus, you really put yourself down in the box, and they were lucky. To be able to go to Columbus and made the goalie switch, but you know how important is it not just in this series but especially in the second round when if you 're there you know you 're a good team, but particularly in this Washington Pittsburgh series for the home team to take care of business in a series that many expect could easily go six to seven
5: yeah, the saying is you 're not really in trouble until you lose at home, and this is the same situation as last year the caps a uh, number one in the metro have home ice they were the top seed in the, or they were not the top seed in the uh, the East this year, but, um, you know, they, it can either go one of two ways. The four-game streak, they'll get hot, they believe in themselves, they're confident, or they can then think, oh, oh no, we have to play the Pittsburgh. And teams were dodging the Penguins. Teams were losing. Um, both the Devils and the Columbus Blue Jackets intentionally lost at the end of their season to not play the Penguins. And then the Flyers had to play them after barely, and if the Flyers lost their last game, it would have been the Florida Panthers in. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot of juggling there right at the end. Um, but if the Cavs have that mindset where we're a good team, which they are, they definitely can win this series. But if they get it in their head that this is the Penguins, big, bad, scary Penguins, they're going to be done quick. Because last year, they played better than the Penguins most of the time. But the Penguins were blocking shots, not letting them shoot from the perimeter. They weren't getting those high-quality, uh, high-chance scoring chances right in the slot, which the Penguins were getting and capitalizing on. And it was 3-2 games. You have to have that third goal at least to win but this year might be even more because th- games have been high scoring
1: neither of these two teams have very good defenses on that note you have to expect that these are going to be some high scoring games down the stretch and both goalies are going to need to be on their toes throughout this series but unlike the past you could easily see some of these games three four five goals hope has to be like hope was two years ago in the regular season he has to be playing on the top of his game if the caps want a chance the other side of the Eastern Conference. We've got Boston and Tampa Bay. I don't think it's a surprise that either of these two teams have made it to the second round. They were the favorites in their respective series. For those who may not have followed these two teams as well, of course, Boston back in the playoffs after not being there last season. Tampa Bay, they've been good for a while now. Well, what is there to watch on these in these two teams? Yeah, well Tampa Bay
5: actually was not in the playoffs last year, um, but their speed team, their skill team, they remind me a lot like the Penguins or um, Winnipeg or Nashville or the Golden Knights. They're they're speedy, they've got some mix of veteran and youth, um, and they're a really good team with a good goaltender, uh, Vasilevsky. But on the other side, you have the Bruins, who the story of the game was, can uh even stop a puck? But the whole team didn't look that good in the first two periods, and they got lucky in the third one, because I thought Toronto was taking that series. But, you know, I don't think it's going to be much of a matchup, but I think Brad Marchand in the top line with Pasternak and uh, Patrice Bergeron, they can definitely create some problems and maybe steal a couple games, but... You know, Tukarask will have to stand on his head much like he did, I think it was two thousand thirteen against the Penguins where he only gave up four goals. Uh, and that let them advance to the Stanley Cup final that year, which they I think lost that year. Um, but Tampa's a team that I think easily wins the series. So they've got stamp they've got uh solid, they've got a defense like nobody can ever believe. Um and this is a team that maybe the Bruins injure a couple guys. Brad Marchand's known to hurt some people. Maybe it gets heated. Maybe a guy's suspended for a game or two, like Nazem Kadri was for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and maybe that alters the series. Otherwise,
1: it's it's Toronto or it's Tampa Bay's to lose. Now you think you you compare the Tampa Bay boston series with washington pittsburgh it's so clear which series has more appeal because of hey you know washington pittsburgh they play every year and on a side note here eric those who say this is a rivalry i'm a caps fan it's no rivalry it's a it's rival a, it's a it's a it's a light rivalry you know what a true rivalry is is if the teams alternate who wins that this may just be me being a little uh, uh, over i the think top that is because i mean i think there's mutual respect between our fans
5: because you guys sure if, if if you guys didn't lose to us you guys probably would have won the cup both years. Like, that's how good you guys were. That's fair. And, you know, I think we like see that Ovechkin. Yes, we we may absolutely hate uh, Tom Wilson, but we, we respect Ovechkin. He's a shooter like this generation has never seen. Um, he might be a little one-dimensional at times, but, you know, as a guy like him, he, he grows on you, and, you know, he's a star in this league, and it, it would really help his reputation if he does get that cup, which is why if they were to beat the Penguins, I would cheer for them. Um, at least to get to the cup, I might still take Vegas or over them because I got four, I got a bunch of Pittsburgh players on that team, but you know they're they're a good team. I think their coach sometimes gets some uh, heat, um, but you know I think I think that's gonna be hard for anybody from the East to win because I think the West has some real talent, uh, and I could easily see three
1: any of the four teams winning. You mentioned it. Let's go to the West right now. We'll start with the Las Vegas, the Golden Knights. They swept the first-round series. It's the first time a NHL franchise in their inaugural expansion season has done that. And they go up against the Sharks. That Okay, you know, last week, Brandon said to me, was the Sharks taking down the Ducks an upset? And I said, technically, yes, but those teams kind of go back and forth all the time, and Vegas was going to be the favorite regardless. What kind of chance do you give the Sharks in this series? You know, I think the Sharks have a lot to play for with Joe Thornton. Uh, and nearing the end of his
5: career, he really wants to win a cup. Evander Kane stepped in, and he's played amazing. Um, this team—they've got experience. They went to the Cup two years ago and lost to the Penguins. They know what it takes to get there. They're a good team. They're without Patrick Marlowe. Maybe that hurts, but you know, they just cleaned up the Ducks in four games, and the Ducks
1: were on a on a roll heading into the postseason. On the other side in the West. You've got Nashville, and you got Winnipeg. Of course, Nashville was in the finals last season, fell to Pittsburgh, but a lot of energy with that city, making it there. They have not won a cup, but getting them to that spot. And now Winnipeg. And for those, Eric, who haven't followed hockey, they may look at Winnipeg and say, when did this, when did this team get good?
5: Yeah, Winnipeg's been slowly building up draft picks. I mean, this is the first time between the thra- Atlanta Thrashers and the Winnipeg Jets that they've been to the playoffs and won a series. Um so you know this team's good. They have a lot of depth. They have a lot of guys that can score. Patrick Line, uh, number two pick two years ago, is amazing. Um, you know he's really helped take charge of that team as a scoring guy. But they've got Mark Scheifele who has flown on the radar for far too long. They've got some good defense, and Connor Helibuck has finally stood,
1: stood on his head and became the goalie I thought he might become. Well, you just look at a couple of these matchups, and you look at you know how some of these guys have scored and. I mean, Kucherov, Tampa Bay, he's already got five goals, but you look in the Sharks' Golden Knights series, there wasn't a lot of scoring early on, and you look at the Jets and the Predators, and not as much scoring, but you look in the Penguins' Capitals series, I mean, you got Getzel with six goals and Ovechkin with five, and Crosby's got 13 points. So, I mean, we talked about that being a high-scoring series. Out of these four series, which one do you think has the potential to be maybe the lowest scoring?
5: The lowest scoring, I, I honestly think that it might be this Nashville uh, Winnipeg series, because I think those two teams are very good, but they also know how to play tight games. They have great defense, the th- um, not the Thrasher's, the Predators, they have P.K. Subban, uh, Matias Ekholm, Ryan Ellis, and Roman Yossi. And those guys can shut down games, but they can also contribute offense. And Pecorino, if he stands on his head, they're a, guy, they're a team to watch. Uh, but Winnipeg, on the other side, they know how to score, and they're fast. And there's going to be a lot of... I feel like that one could either be a lot of scoring or very little scoring. Uh, but I think you have to look at Vegas and San Jose, how Vegas only had a couple of goals. And Vegas is a team that I chose. I said at the beginning of the season, I said, they're going to the playoffs. And then halfway through the season, I said, or I said, they're going to go to the playoffs and went around. And then halfway through the season, I was like, you know, they have a legit chance to get to Eastern conference or the Western conference final being in the division that they're in. Um, and I think that's still remains true. they are four games, four wins away from that. I don't think they get to the cup this year, but they are a very talented team. They took, like Second, third rounders in their draft, expansion draft, they added a lot of guys with very high upside, and those guys have all performed as they expected. Plus, they took some guys with some bad contracts who were elite stars like James Neal, Mark andre Fleury, where they have that mixture of veteran depth and youth, like the Penguins have had in their past two Stanley Cup runs, where they can put their performance and their leadership to uh, to test and just win games and win them low scoring like they did against Vegas. They're a team that has scored a lot but they're a team that can also score little and still win by playing good hockey all around.
1: Really an amazing story with the Las Vegas Golden Knights, really regardless what happens, but obviously a lot of casual NHL fans will be pulling for them. It's time for picks, Eric. We'll start with that series right there. Which team do you like? Golden Knights, Sharks, and in how many games? I like the
5: Golden Knights in this one, but I'll take
1: it to seven. I think that they're two very good teams. They both won four in a row,
5: but they had a lot of time off. So whoever has the least amount of rust will have an early edge in this series, and depending on how the other team responds, um, that'll be how the series goes.
1: Winnipeg and Nashville, the other series in the West. Who do you like?
5: This is gonna be the best series that anybody's gonna see all playoffs, and this series gonna be high scoring, go back and forth both ways. It's not gonna be a sweep. This game's going, this is going six or seven at the least, Um, and you know I think the home home crowd for both of them have really shown up. But you know in the past they have the uh, the I don't know what they call it, Smashville, or, is it, Smashville. or, or what are their fans called? Are they called something special? But they show up, and they have some taunts that really kind of bugged me at the beginning of the playoffs. Like last year, lots up a goal. They yell their name. Uh, so, like, Murray, Murray. uh it's all your fault. It's all your fault. And then like something like you suck, you suck or so, uh, something. It sounds good when they say it. But I don't I, I don't I, listen to their but games. But
1: isn't that something but, that but any but, any old but, fan but, can do.
5: But it's something that any old fan can do, but when you have the entire stadium doing it, okay. It, that's it sounded pretty cool. really good. And you know, I was kinda jealous that my team wasn't doing it. Yeah. But luckily it didn't affect a solid young goaltender mm-hmm. like Matt Murray.
1: So who do you who do you like in that series then?
5: You know, in that series I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Winnipeg. I think that they have they have just a little bit more um, you know, the depth over in Nashville, they really added, but
1: this one could go either way. It's a coin, coin flip, and I've, I like both those teams. In the East, Boston and Tampa Bay, they won't play till Saturday because Boston just finished off Toronto yesterday. Boston, Tampa Bay, who are you picking here? I'm going to pick Tampa in six on this one. And then finally, our two teams going at it tonight. It's game one at Capital One Arena in Washington. The Penguins and the Capitals, who is your pick and in how many games? Take, I, I have to take Penguins in seven, but it, it could easily be Caps in seven. And you know, it's funny. I, I will, Personally, I will say, well, I'm I'm hoping it's going to be Caps in seven, but you know what, Eric, when your team loses in the second round every year, you learn to have low expectations to the point when they finally do it, it'll feel so good.
5: That's very true. My roommate, Ryan, he said the same thing. He's like, I expect a sweep, but like no expectations. Like I'll cheer' them on, but you know that seems like the common thing between all all fans of the capitals. They have very low expectations they've lost nine out of ten series against them they've lost three in or they've lost two of their last three in the second round in game seven um by being blown out, and they lost in game six, and most of these games, a lot of them have gone to overtime and if they could have taken flip the overtime, switch over, flip it, add two, maybe even two from the win column, they probably are Stanley Cup, uh, have at least one franchise Stanley Cup.
0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Talking earlier about Delaware football, they just had their spring game to wrap up
3: spring practices this past weekend. And on that topic, Teddy, you wrote a sports commentary for the review this past week, which raised, you know, multiple ideas, but really was discussing how the football team at any school, but Delaware in particular with the level that the school is at currently, how the football team influences the perception of the athletic department and perhaps the school as a whole, regardless of what else goes on within the athletic department, and how here at Delaware, the football team may just be on the cusp of that contention status that fans have been waiting for since 2010, since the last time that the Delaware Blue Hens made the FCS playoffs and advanced to the FCS National Championship. First of all, I kind of agree with you the premise of your commentary, but if you want to explain a little bit more what your thoughts are behind this topic.
1: Yeah, of course. So on uh, UDReview.com, it can be found um, titled, For the First Time Under Raywalk, No News May Be Good News. The inspiration surrounding this commentary came Monday night when we were both sitting upstairs in the review office putting the paper together. And you know what? I was I was kind of looking at, at the spring sports and I said, I haven't remembered this level or this lack of a level of excitement surrounding the spring sports. So I did a little bit of digging into numbers and I found that among the four major spring sports here at Delaware, which in my opinion, and I would assume just about everybody's, are baseball, softball, men's and women's lacrosse. A combined 43 and 33 record. Now, you throw in an 11 and 30 record from softball. That kind of inflates. 43
3: and 63. What did I say? You said 43 and something else. Local. Sorry, 40, 43 and 63. 40, so
1: 43 and 63. Far under 500. 20 under 500. But you throw in the 11 and 30 mark from softball, and that inflates it in a negative way. So the rest of these teams are basically mediocre. So I took that, and I said, you know what? Okay. Our, our spring teams, there's hardly any excitement. Yeah, you know, you got a new coach in lacrosse, and there are some things that have been positive, but for the most part, there hasn't been much excitement. And then we have the spring game, football, on Saturday. And like we talked about with Hannah earlier, and if you missed that segment, you can find it on our podcast, really good commentary about the Delaware football season and thinking about, well, you know what? Does it really matter how bad or average, if I'm being nice, these spring teams are if the football team under Rocco's second season goes onto the field in the fall and they start winning and they make the playoffs. And I, my argument in this column was, no, it doesn't, because football is bringing all the money in, and uh, our, uh, one of our um, companions, partners, whatever you want to call it upstairs, Jacob Oilage did a whole story on the athletic budget and where that's coming from this week, and finding that you know in, in the CIA, the CIA is not self-sustaining. And so a lot of the money is coming from tuition and other university sources to, to basically pump the, athletic, the, the break, pump the pedals of the athletic department. And so I said, you know what, if your football program is really rolling, it doesn't matter how good or bad the other schools are. And if our field hockey national championship was won during the same season as a football national championship, that would almost make the field hockey national championship feel like it meant more, but when field hockey won and football wasn't good, congratulations, field hockey. I mean, it was a great accomplishment. We were there, but it didn't shift the perception nationally. So that's kind of the argument here. Look at what we've got in the spring, this, in the sports, their mediocrity. Spring game just happened, and remember that hope that we felt in the fall with the football program, and think when that comes back, and if the team does make the playoff, are we going to remember these spring sports? So just kind of combining some of these themes we've talked about in a very um, comprehensive sense, and you and I have talked about this for a long time now, about, you know, football's the engine. Football's the engine. And so when you get Ray Walk in here, and she's got to fix up a lot of stuff, her top priority, if not the top, one of the top, is to get the football program on track. And she brings Rocco in, and you can almost begin to see that the train is going in the right
3: direction. And to tie your piece with Jacob's piece, which you previously mentioned as the athletic budget piece, you argue in the commentary that it's a good thing for Raywalk to place a high level of investment in football and in men's basketball, the two top sports at the university, of which you argue that the prestige and perception of the university is extremely tied to. And that much, I believe, is true. But I think there's a lot of people that would disagree with you that regardless of how closely related football successes to the perception of the university and of the university's athletic department, that that type of money should not be used to fund football, and that there are more important uses or better uses for the 28 billion dollars that the university allocates to the athletic department that could go elsewhere. Um, to what, what would you say to those, to those critics, and what's the benefit of investing that type of money? into football and men's basketball?
1: It's a great question, and I'm going to tie in the review rundown, the podcast with the review, that we do, that we do every week, and Brandon was a guest on it this week, with Jacob, Jacob Orlich, who wrote the story that you know 82% of the Delaware athletic budget is not coming from athletics. It's coming from the university subsidies, and they are transferring tuition and other things to athletics. And on the review rundown, you brought up the point that you look at James Madison and... They are in a very similar, I I referenced it in the column too, university enrollment, we're in the same conference as them. What's the big difference? The big difference is that their teams are good. Most of them are really good, and our teams are not quite there yet. And so you said, you know, I have a hard time imagining that people down in Harrisonburg are wondering where all the money is coming from. Their team won a national championship, borderline dynasty. So do people really care about that down there in Harrisonburg? And it was a really good point. And, my, and the way I respond to, like you said before, to those critics is when we get to that point, will people care here? Will they care here? But you can't get to, and this is
3: kind of the yeah. The, in the, the meantime, how do you get over that exactly? Public this is perception what battle. this is
1: what's this is what's so tough, double-edged sword. You can't get. You can't suddenly be good unless you pour money in, unless you've got some crazy magic. You're not going to be good unless you pour money into recruiting and a stadium and all of this stuff that we're seeing Delaware do. Now, when when will it pay off? When will we see the dividends? I don't know. You'd like to think a year, two, three. You'd like to see them get into the playoffs consistently now and really compete with JMU on that level. But when JMU football team has done what it's done, it's brought in more money and therefore they now ha- are, have announced yeah, plans
3: for a basketball arena. Eventually you create that never-ending cycle of a successful team which bring, that encourages the university and others to support it financially, which allows you to recruit the best players and have the best facilities, which again helps you recruit the best players, which again helps you have the best team, which draws in more money and allows you to have the best facilities again and then allows you to get the best players after that. And Delaware is at a level where, outside of football success and athletic facility, Delaware, in every other measurable, as you compare the two schools, is the same or better than James Madison University. So the challenge for Chrissy Raywalk and the athletic department, as they aim to raise football up and in turn raise the profile of the athletic department, is to change those two things, the success on the field, which they've tried to do by hiring head coach Kenny Rocco, and the facilities, which they're in the process of doing with the $60 million investment through the Delaware First Fundraising Campaign for renovated seatbacks at Delaware Stadium and for the Whitney Athletic Training Complex.
1: Now you take all of this and you consider it and you reflect on it And you think about the situation and the context that the University of Delaware is in as a medium-sized school, not Alabama, not Penn State, not any of these teams. And some of those critics that we've talked about, oh, don't put money in, don't put money in. You have to wonder, you have to ask them, and they have to ask me, and this is the conversation you have to have. Where do you envision the university doing? What do you envision the university doing with athletics? Because the way I see it, is that Raywalk and all everybody down there is seeing what it can do for a school? You're seeing what it does for JMU, and it, like Stuart Kaufman, one of the professors that's that's quoted um, in Jacob's piece and in the review rundown, says the university told him that. Athletics leads to donors and more money coming in, which is true. It's one of those sources of pride. So if people who don't support this athletics idea here at the university say, well, we shouldn't get into that. That's not our, our forte. We belong in a separate field, literally and figuratively. And figuratively. We shouldn't be pouring money in. But you've got to think, can athletics better the university? Can eventually the university begin to become self-sustaining? And is that a long-term plan for RAYWALK, where down the stretch, you know, the the stadium gets bigger, you start winning, you win national championships, your teams get rolling, and at some point you get closer to self-sustaining, and then you may see the benefits on the university. But you're not going to get there until you pour money in. So those who may not be happy with what's happening now, you've got to think, well, 10 years later, will you be happy with where we're at? And that's a question that you've got, to, you've got to ponder. You've got to wonder, because those who are in athletics are going to say, yeah, we're moving in the right direction. Others will say, no, this money deserves, like Jacob quoted in his piece, or talked about in his piece, this money needs to be to advising and more ac- academic-related things. But it, bottom line, if you're in athletics, you're going to want it to go to athletics. And if you're in academics, you're going to want it to go to academics. Is there a way to do a little bit of both? The Delaware First campaign is trying to say, yes, there is. And they're getting close to it. The, the, that money is up. So that was kind of the premise of this column. And I, my point in writing this, Brandon, was really to get readers, listeners to this show, listeners to the review rundown to think about the time that we're in right now in Delaware athletics is such a crucial time. And I'm not telling you, I'm, I'm not asking people to say I'm with it or I'm not, but I'm asking people to see it as it is. Read the story about where the money's coming from. Listen to what the teams are doing. Hear what Inglesby's doing with the men's program. Hear what Rocco's doing and be aware of it because I guarantee you in 10 years or so down the road, we're going to be talking about days, weeks, and months like this as a critical time in the university athletic history.